In this episode, we will be using BattleBards sound effects. Check them out, battlebards.com. And if you're signing up for a Prime account, be sure to use our code STACK to get a discount. Flavoring up the Barbarian's Rage. Welcome back to another Creation Corner episode, Stackers. I realize our content selection has been (laughs) all over the place for the past month or so, but it's really what I've come to expect at the end of a season. So I hope you found it to be good in spite of the general unpredictability of our release schedule. As it is, I'm glad we've mostly stuck to the every Monday episode, especially considering the pace of life outside the game. I hope you've enjoyed everything, and we'll see what we can do to close out Season 5 in style. I've been working on this episode for a little, and I really want to get it recorded and in your ears. I hope you'll enjoy it and that you'll share what you think. You can, of course, find us on Twitter and Instagram at stackodice, email us at stack.o.dice at gmail.com, or really just chat with us in real time on our Discord server. For more details on all those things, please feel free to check our show notes or look for links on our Twitter and Instagram feeds. We'd love to see you. As you'll know by now, I love flavoring up mechanics. I think it adds a lot to the table experience when the players and DM use their creativity jointly to punch up something that would otherwise just fade into the background. That's why the Book of Muscles has been what it is and has been so much fun to dive into. And this is exactly why we've opted to have special episodes for our level ups, because it gives reason or context for what each character gets at the next level and makes it a bit more special. I think those little focused level up episodes are one of the things that has made this game so different to me. Introducing narrative hooks that help make mechanical things relevant to the story has altered the way I look at and plan for them, and I think the players have responded positively to this change. With this in mind, I'd like to consider other ways to use flavor to influence a campaign. In this episode, I want to look at one bit of low-hanging fruit, the Barbarian's Rage. As you've seen with Tira throughout our show, this feature, Rage, is a helpful, powerful ability that increases Tira's damage while also extending her staying power by reducing the damage she takes. It's easy enough to say, I go into a rage, or I'll start raging, But I think that with a little digging, we can add some context to it or empower those playing barbarians to add some flavor of their own if they choose. So strap yourselves in and we're about to get digging. As it's described, Rage in the player's handbook seems to be based mainly on the concept of the Scandinavian Berserker, the notorious northern warrior known for furious feats of strength during battle. The word itself is interesting because it seems to be a compound made up of bear, B-E-R, meaning bear like the animal, and zerker, meaning shirt, one who wears a shirt made from a bear. You may remember way back at the beginning that I made this connection explicit in the first Battle of Arden when the bear lady brought her small force against the palisade of the town. In English translations of the early 19th century, the bear part appears to have been misconstrued at first as bear, B-A-R-E, meaning unclothed. 
So the picture there was of an unclad man running into battle, perhaps as a sign of bravery and unconcern for self. While this sort of insane bravado is often attributed to Celtic warriors, later linguistic work seems to have corrected this understanding to the animal-related, skin-clad warrior. This class of fighter, the berserker, seems to have been known for some time, but I do find it interesting that for the vivid picture the berserker has painted in popular culture, there isn't a lot of historical support. There is some, but not as much as our mental image might seem to indicate. For instance, there aren't a ton of references to berserkers in existing literature, although there are a few that give some tantalizing glimpses. The oldest comes from Ravensmal, or Harald's Skvadi, a song from the late 800s. Here's what it says. I'll ask of the berserks, you tasters of blood. Those intrepid heroes, how are they treated, those who wade out into battle? Wolf-skinned, they are called. In battle, they bear bloody shields. Red with blood are their spears when they come to fight. They form a closed group. The prince in his wisdom puts trust in such men who hack through enemy shields. That's from sections 20 and 21 of that poem. About 350 years later, another poem called Inglinga Saga shared this. Odin could make his enemies in battle blind, or deaf, or terror-struck, and their weapons so blunt that they could no more but than a willow wand. On the other hand, his men rushed forwards without armor, were as mad as dogs or wolves, bit their shields and were strong as bears or wild bulls, and killed people at a blow, but neither fire nor iron told upon themselves. This was called Berserkergang. And you'll find that in section 6. There are other references throughout history. Some Roman art shows what appears to be Germanic warriors clad in animal skins, and a later Byzantine text describes members of the Eastern Emperor's Varangian Guard as dancing in skins and masks. This elite guard was made of warriors from Northern Europe to include the Scandinavian region. Again, there are a few references that may or may not be directly related to this class of warriors. Regardless of the historicity, the image of animal-clad warriors sneaking through the fog or hurling themselves into the thick of battle with unfeeling, indiscriminate fury is remarkably picturesque. And if their reputation works on our minds today, it's obvious that it affected the minds of those who faced them even more. The descriptions I've shared have provoked lots of questions, of course. The symptoms described may be accounted for through several possible ways, in preparing for this episode, I found that researchers looking into the berserkers believe these warriors achieve their fearsome reputation through one of three ways. A psychological working up, deriving perceived power through animal-focused worship, or through taking some form of substance that could induce superhuman effects. So let's take a look at each of these individually. If berserkers work themselves up psychologically before battle, then the simplest explanation is that a group of warriors dedicated to excellence in battle could gather around each other before the swords began their work and encourage each other to great deeds, invoking a sense of camaraderie in the coming shared danger, with the individual warrior leaping into the fray knowing that this naturally stoked heart was protecting his own back as much as he was protecting those next to him. If they relied on animal worship, that might make sense too. It seems that the scant literary references to Berserkergang associate the tradition with some key animals, bears, wolves, perhaps bulls, and boar. While the worship practices of berserkers don't seem to have been recorded, 
It's easy for me to imagine a firelight ceremony the night before an impending battle. The warriors are chanting, swaying, and thumping their weapons rhythmically on their shields, clad in their animal skins and howling as the emotion sweeps through them. Perhaps there's a scald or priest standing nearby, ready to amplify things with a song calling on the skill of ancestors or a ritual to impart the blessings of the gods on those about to launch into battle. It's hard to say, but this is a slight step up from the previous one in that it appeals to something superhuman, more than human. Drawing upon the ferocity of nature's wrath could add a dimension of savagery in battle that would be extremely unsettling. Then finally, there's the possibility of substance use. This final point might be the most likely, although exactly what was involved is difficult to pin down. In the 18th century, Swedish theologian Samuel Erdmann conjectured that the berserker effect could have been produced by eating Amanita muscaria, a mushroom known more commonly as fly Amanita, and that's a name that will immediately be familiar to Skyrim fans. You may even know this mushroom even if you've never heard of the name. It's distinctive for its broad red cap and white spots. Most cartoony renderings, like the houses of the Smurfs in the old cartoon, tend to depict a caricature of fly Amanita. Don't be fooled, though. This friendly-looking mushroom is far from friendly, and eating this dangerous fungus can lead to a laundry list of undesirable effects. Seriously, do not look for or eat this mushroom. To quote from a 2019 Ars Technica article that I'll share in the show notes, these can include a drunken state with auditory illusions and shifts in color vision. It can also induce vomiting, hyperthermia, sweating, reddening of the face, twitching and trembling, dilated pupils, increased muscle tone, delirium, and seizures. Some of these can certainly be linked to the berserk condition we're considering, but something to consider is that aggressive rage is not common with the mushroom. As a side note, if you look at the official Player's Handbook artwork that Meredith points to as her influence for Tira's appearance, you'll see what looks like Fly Amanita in the right-hand part of the picture. I'm not certain if the artist was making this connection explicit, but it does seem an interesting coincidence if it wasn't by design. After examining the effects of Fly Amanita on the human body, an ethnobotanist cited in the article proposes another possible source for the berserk effect. Henbane. This poisonous member of the nightshade family can have a number of similar effects, plus some others that fall within the effects of the barbarian's rage in 5e rules, to include agitation to full-blown rage and combativeness depending on the dosage and the individual's mental set. It can also dull pain, hence the accounts of berserkers being nearly invulnerable, contribute to an inability to recognize faces, cause removal of clothing, and lower blood pressure, which might account for the assertion that berserkers didn't lose much blood when injured with blades. This last item is particularly interesting in this episode because it marks one of the few departures between the D&D rules and its real-world pattern. By the rules, a raging barbarian has resistance, or takes half damage, from bludgeoning, slashing, and piercing damage when historic accounts seem to indicate bludgeoning weapons were actually more effective against berserkers than edged weapons. So while I'm not crazy about the idea of dosing up before going into battle, this conjecture does seem like a strong possibility, and it may be one worth considering as the source for the slim accounts we have for Berserker Gong. So I've said all that, and I'm sure there's much more we could dig into as we consider the historicity of this topic, but I think we've built a fairly strong base here to start looking at two main ways to use the real-world model to flavor our game worlds. First, 
We can start by looking at the proposed ways berserkers entered their rage. Remember, it would be through exhortation, preparatory animal worship, or the use of substances. Sure, the player's handbook doesn't indicate any need for a trigger. The barbarian is just able to go into a rage on a whim, and I think that's fine. But Dungeon Masters, if you work with your player to add a trigger, if that sounds like something you would like to explore, the PC could do so by resorting to one of these conjectured methods, or even come up with a new one. If you decide to go this route, it could be that a player has to be talked into a rage by a party member, and I like to think that that would be perhaps the party member that gets on the barbarian's nerves the most. That'd be a fun way of flavoring it up, goading someone into a rage just before battle, or even during battle. Perhaps the character has to perform a ritual or don a specific piece of gear before going into a rage, or perhaps the rage is always available to the character, but they get a more powerful version of the rage if they go through the ritual or put on that particular piece of clothing before battle. This might be an especially good fit for a player running a totem warrior barbarian. Finally, in this section, they might even need to take something, a potion or something similar, to induce the effect. This would effectively work like making a spellcaster that has to use spell components, and could even introduce random effects as they take that item, especially if they've had it in their inventory for quite a while. It's all about how creative you want to get. I'm not a proponent of making features in D&D more complex, but if you do consider doing it, I'd love to know what form your method takes and how it ends up working out. The second way of dressing up the barbarian's rage in a game is that we can look at how we describe the process of entering a rage, because giving a player that sort of creativity, that sort of freedom to describe something happening, something very intense happening to their character, that could be a fun way of dressing up a battle. As we read in the sections above, we saw some disturbing behavior. The berserkers, as they're described in that old literature, were called tasters of blood. They were clad in skins, they were biting their shields, they were felling opponents with a single blow. That's some pretty heavy stuff. And that would be an interesting way of showing off the might of the barbarian in battle. It's also very interesting that visuals come to us from a different direction. The Norse weren't the only ones with a culture of superhuman changes in battle. The Celts that lived throughout much of Europe and the British Isles had a hero named Cuchulain who underwent a disturbing transformation of his own. It was called Riestrad, and I'll share a couple translated passages that describe it. Here's the first. He shakes from head to toe and revolves within his skin that becomes red and hot to touch. His features become bestial, one eye becoming large and bloodshot while the other becomes extremely small and menacing. His mouth becomes impossibly large and emits both fire and sparks, while his hair becomes spiked and emits further flame. The second is more grotesque. The first warp spasm seized Cuchulain and made him into a monstrous thing, hideous and shapeless, unheard of. His shanks and his joints, every knuckle and angle and organ from head to foot shook like a tree in the flood or a reed in the stream. His body made a furious twist inside his skin so that his feet and shins switched to the rear and his heels and calves switched to the front. On his head, the temple sinews stretched to the nape of his neck, each mighty, immense, measureless knob as big as the head of a month-old child. He sucked one eye so deep into his head 
that a wild crane couldn't probe it onto his cheek and out of the depths of his skull. The other eye fell out along his cheek. His mouth weirdly distorted, his cheek peeled back from his jaws until the gullet appeared, his lungs and his liver flapped in his mouth and throat, his lower jaw struck the upper a lion-killing blow, and fiery flakes large as a ram's fleece reached his mouth from his throat. The hair of his head twisted like the tangle of a red thornbush stuck in a gap. If a royal apple tree with all its kingly fruit were shaken above him, scarce an apple would reach the ground, but each would be spiked on a bristle of his hair as it stood up on his scalp with rage. <laughs> Needless to say, I would not want to be the one going toe-to-toe -to -toe with this guy. This is very similar in concept to the haka that Michael and I have talked about, I believe, on Mike at least once or twice. The Maori war dance that preceded battle and was intended to show distortion of features and shows of bravado in order to intimidate the opposing side. Look for video on examples of haka that I'll share also. I share these passages and these examples to illustrate just how crazy a player can get with the description of going into a rage. Just about anything is fair game, and the details could even change based on the situation. Imagine a player getting to play upon the known fears or aversions of an enemy, perhaps for bonuses with a willing DM, as a way of dressing up an encounter. I think it would be important to impose some guidelines in advance, but within reason it could be a fun way to accentuate the barbarian's role in battle. So there you have it, a little bit of research, a little bit of flavor, guidance, concepts, ideas, possibilities. Again, be sure to check our show notes for links to all the things that I have mentioned, and I hope that you find it helpful and interesting, and that you'll do some neat things with what we've talked about today. I think that's about all I'd like to say on the topic for now, and I hope that the brevity of this episode opens your mind to some possibilities. What do you think? Is this worth pursuing? Is this too much effort? I would love to know your thoughts. Please, again, catch us on Twitter and Instagram at stackadice. Email us at stack.o.dice at gmail.com. Or catch us on Discord or any combination of the above. We would love to hear from you, your thoughts on this episode, and your thoughts on the show in general. With that, I think we're going to have one more week of special content coming up, after which we will have our final two episodes of Season 5. We're looking forward to bringing the season to a close, and we hope to see you again right here next time at Stack of Dice.